Really stoked to have Nick. He will be introducing a special guest who is his partner in crime. And I just want to say that humbled for Nick this evening, not be, not just because uh, sort of a uh, uh, someone who I was introduced to not too long ago in terms of the the cannabis scene and uh, skilled grower in the state, also um, a BGA business member. And I just want to say that is incredibly appreciative and meaningful for us as a nonprofit. Guys, members are at the heart of everything that we do. It's the support uh, from businesses and individuals that allow us to attend these meetings that we need to attend that we can't because we all have jobs and make sure now we're not just reporting on things, but uh, advocating for policies that directly impact materially all of our all of our lives and our families' lives. So really appreciate, Nick, that support and having you this evening. How's it going? All right. Yeah, thank you. Um, my name's Nick Mateg, Forbin's Finest, the company uh, Angela and I have uh, started here in Vermont. I've been a gardener and a cannabis grower for many years, not a, uh, a specialist by any means when it comes to uh, um, growing. I, um, my training was in, um, I was a mechanic for years, mechanical engineering and, and HVAC. I was a diesel mechanic for a long time. And uh, growing is something that I have been interested in since I was, uh, you know, real young. I, I grew up uh, canning foods every fall with my parents, and uh, you know, growing a lot of the food that we ate. So that was that was something that I was certainly exposed to. Um, not something I I really enjoyed until I got uh, a little older. But um, I've been growing cannabis since I was uh, 18 years old, something like that. Um, the first first grow I ever I ever did was uh, actually like in a closet with some seeds that I found in a in a bag that I had bought uh, from somebody and and uh, actually soil uh, left over from like an old flower bed and uh, and that was it and it's uh, uh, ever since then I've been really uh, interested in, in cannabis and and definitely love uh, not only enjoying cannabis but uh, growing cannabis and uh, that's uh, that's where the adventure started and and uh, I'm, I'm still at it obviously um, so the, uh, the the last five years uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, as a consultant now jumping ahead um, I saw a need uh, when the home grow here in Vermont started basically um, a few, few different friends here in Vermont with uh, grow supply stores and and there was a need for guys uh, to in, be installing you know mini split systems and dehumidifiers and and stuff like that medical growing kicked off and so I kind of started doing that uh, as a side project and it turned into a, a full-blown um, full-blown job essentially and that eventually morphed into kind of a grow consulting business. And that's what I've been been doing for the last five years. Uh, and uh, pretty lucky, actually, I've learned an awful lot uh, in doing that, uh, a lot more about growing cannabis than just environments. But uh, that's what I'm here to share tonight, some of, the, some of that information and uh, some of how I grow, basically. And uh, why don't you, um, thank you for that. Why don't you uh, go into, share a little bit about uh, Forbin's Finest, um, the business. Uh, yeah. Maybe people can sort of reach you a little bit about it as well. Maybe for those who aren't quite as familiar, Nick. 
Yep, sure. So uh, Foreman's Finest is uh, something that we decided to do. Um, I got to introduce my partner, Angela. So she's not actually here tonight, um, but I do want to uh, talk about that for just a minute. Um, recognize her because uh, she has been a huge part of um, my support system and, uh, you know, uh, the decision to to jump into the cannabis cultivation market when it starts up here in Vermont. Um, and uh, so that's something that we uh, we started Forbes Finest. I'm a huge fish fan and that's where that comes from. A lot of people don't necessarily get that, but uh, fish from Vermont, the band, you know, so uh, that's where the name came from. And uh, we are hoping to get into the, the rec market and to, you know, be part of uh, bringing cannabis and cannabis growers um, to the light, essentially. And um, uh, I lost my train of thought there, sorry. But no uh, so, so that's that's what we're doing. And so Angela and I are, are going to be uh, growing and, and uh, hopefully a part of the rec market. And we're, we're really excited about that. We're, we're definitely excited to um you know work with some of the other guys growers and uh retailers in the state you know that are uh that have the same dream that we do to to um you know take cannabis out of the shadows and out of the uh the um you know gray markets and and it, uh, into something that's accepted by everybody and uh and okay you know so yeah, I appreciate uh, that perspective of, you know, sort of camaraderie with other sort of businesses and, and, you know, friends and, but also, you know, it's important to have a team, um, you know, that really, you know, at a certain point, especially we can get into this later when it comes to scaling up and having that sort of right perspective and yep. doing property, you really need to, you know, surround yourself with the invaluable people. And it sounds like you have it in clearly on many levels, but that's awesome. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So she's part owner. Uh, Angela is part owner and she is my partner. And, uh, and um, yeah, she's, uh, she's actually taking care of, uh, she does a lot of the stuff that I can't do because I'm really, really, when it comes down to it, I'm just a humble um, grower and, you know, uh, even all the work that I've been able to do over the last five years. Um, so maybe, let me backtrack a little bit. The first job I ever had was, was HVAC. And at the time, uh, you know, I was uh, going, I was getting certified as a diesel mechanic and working on heavy duty trucks. And so that was kind of a component of that refrigerated trucks. And that is something that I had very little interest in, in back then. And then it kind of like propelled me into um, the cannabis industry and the, the hemp industry even I, I was able to work with some um, hemp nurseries and like smaller hemp farms that that do their own indoor propagation and stuff like that um, so it you know it, it's it's a strange road that I have been down to get where I to where I am but you're not alone with that man that's the moment of time that we're in right you know it's exactly like fade, sort of Yes, yes. And, and then, you know, to Angela and I have both, uh, we've been friends since uh, we, we went to high school together. We've known each other a long time. And, you know, legitimizing the cannabis industry is something that is important to both of us, because I have obviously growing 20 years ago, if you were growing 20 years ago, it was, you know, that was a risky decision. And, um, 
people that really love cannabis took a lot of risks. And, uh, you know, I, I recognize that and working with other cannabis growers, working, uh, even with, uh, unregulated growers, uh, legacy growers in, in Vermont in the last five years has really, um, you know, opened my eyes to how important it is to legitimize the cannabis industry and take it, you know, to, to, to something that is just accepted and is something that everybody can talk about. You know, there's a, Vermont is known, uh, we're known for our cannabis. There's a lot of great growers here and, and, you know, it's time for those people to be able to experience, uh, you know, being free and being uh, proud of what they do. And so that's important to both of us. No, I appreciate you bringing that to the table because, um, you know, that helps uh, definitely with community building outside of shows like this, you know, just having that that uh, perspective sort of proliferating, I think, is a good thing and not a bad thing. Hey, before we move on too yep. quickly, um, how can individuals find you? Uh, are you guys on social media, Facebook or? Yes, or um, so we are we are on Facebook. Foreman's Finest is pretty easy to find. We're also on Instagram. I have two different accounts there. My original uh, a Colonel Forbin account is kind of my personal account or the, the business account. And we also have a website uh, that is not quite up right. I'm not sure if it's actually up right now or not, but that will be up soon. Um, and then there is email, which is uh, Nick at Forbin's Finest. This is a great way to get get a hold of me directly. Awesome! Thank you for sharing. It's important for us as an organization yep. to make sure that individuals know how to find you if they want to. So, especially if they're uh, you know um, new for the first time to hearing about you. So awesome! Thanks, Nick. Um, so wow, you say big trucks? Like uh, I was not aware of. Uh, you know, lots of parallels, clearly, you know, um, using your hands and whatnot, right, to um, yeah. understanding grows, the, the mechanics behind it, the SOPs, ultimately, working in exactly. business conversations. So bring us over to uh, cannabis cultivation and, you know, um, the different uh, methods that you either currently explore or have explored. Um, maybe even walk us through, you know, a little bit of like your own maybe evolution process in terms of... Yeah. You know, because we know that you're no uh, you're no new kid on the block when it comes to uh, when it comes to this. So, so what do you work with now? And uh, you know, you know, where 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 that come from? Yeah. So um, I ha I have pretty much grown almost every different style in my own personal growing. Uh, like I said, when I started twenty years ago, uh, that was just soil, and I don't even know. I, I can't even remember what I actually used for uh, for inputs, but um, I started out with soil and I grew, um, you know, like the, the standard potting soil and fertilizer that you buy at the grow store or Agway um, method. Um, then uh, I, I, I was like really interested in hydroponics. And so that that's kind of where I took off um, after a few years of growing, um, then my, my first introduction to hydroponics was kind of through a mentor and, uh, that was like flood and drain, um, where you basically have a nutrient stock tank, the, the tables flooded. My, my medium of choice for a long time was the expanded clay because it's totally reusable. And so, um, you know, what is that? You, is that the, is it the pellets? Like I, the, the pellets? Yep. 
The hydrogen, yeah, hydrocorn, hydrogen, expanded clay. Um, it's totally reusable, totally washable. Um, and so that was kind of my first, uh, my first go at hydroponics. And I, I basically stuck with that for quite a while because, you know, it's really simple. Um, you can get pretty decent results with, uh, you know, a, a basic recipe. And uh, at the time, keeping uh, keeping the, the inputs low was important to me. So being able to reuse your hydroton, wash your whole entire media, you know, system, not, not have to buy soil, not have to throw soil away. You basically harvest plants and compost what you're not using and, and on to the next, uh, the next cycle. Um, I did, uh, after that, I did experiment with like deep water culture. I did that for uh, about a year, um, just because I had some other friends that were growing in that style. Um, and I, I did like that. Uh, there, there's things to like about deep water culture, but, um, ultimately not something that I, that I stuck with. Um, so you went from, so, so you're already in hydro. And so I guess stepping back, you, it sounds like it started with me, like where a lot of people start, right. Where I started, I'll say bag sweat. Bag soil, definitely. Something off the shelf a long, way before there was maybe 20 or 30 varieties of like craft soil, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This was like the empty, the emptiest, you know, peat soil that that everybody, but that was the standard too back then. Right. I was like, uh, that's what people did. I mean, miracle grow, you know, people were doing that. Um, But yeah, so I, I, you know, I found hydro um, just to be really easy. Um, Yeah. And, you know, there were, there were, you go to the hydro stores back then there was like, there would be a, a flood table a lot of times or, or a rockwell table. And, and it was just like this, you know, this is the other option. Okay. I'll try that. And um, I, I went down that road for a long time. And actually I, I still work with uh, growers that use like sim- similar techniques, either um, not a lot of flood and drain anymore, but certainly a lot of like the same methodology, just with a drip feed or an irrigation system. Um, so, uh, so that's that, that's what I did. I did the flood and drain for a while. I experimented with deep water culture because um, you know anyone anyone that's been growing a long time and spent time in the you know on the grow forums, like there was there was always a lot of that. Um, there was always people trying new stuff or designing their own systems. Like that's one like really cool thing about cannabis growing. There is more diversity I've found, you know, going back to like overgrow and forums and stuff like that. Just so many people playing around with, uh, with like different ways to grow back then. And ultimately it's just because we all love growing cannabis and, you know, it's like so fun and uh, there's so much diversity within cannabis. It's it's just like a never ending, it's a never ending game that you can play. I guess is, is uh, one so way. You, you were on Overground. That's awesome. I, I that's the was like the first forum that, yeah. I, that I really participated in a long long time ago. Yeah, I'm sure some people out there remember that. I was on that. I was also on IC Mag back in the day. Yep. You know, early 2000s. Totally. So. Yeah, I yeah, I, I mean, I spent a lot of time. I learned a lot on IC Mag, actually, a lot of lot of time reading for fun and just you know, you know to learn to learn more. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I, I moved through 
deep water culture growing. Um, I experimented with, uh, I, I personally, I experimented with drip feed and cocoa. I've worked with some other growers that use rock wool and, and do drip feed. That is like, that's like the standard. Um, even up in Maine, there are some larger facilities that are doing that. <clears throat> and, you know, if you look out West, um, those, you know, the truly massive facilities that you see in California, a lot of those guys are growing with like clean salts and, uh, and rock wool. That is like, to me, that, that is, uh, something that I've moved away from personally. Um, if I, if I can just jump totally ahead. So now I actually grow my own personal medicine in a no-till bed. I, I'm my, this is my, actually my first run in the no-till bed right right now. I've been growing uh, using organic inputs in like all pots of various sizes over the last the last year or so. Um, but um, you know I I so I I did personally experiment with growing in cocoa and I worked with some other growers using rock wool. I, I don't like rock wool. It's it's like really hard on the environment. It's just one of those things um, that just shouldn't exist essentially when it comes to the growing world if you if you ask me um, why is that and, and when you say rock wool there might be people out there who i mean that that term i think sometimes it can be it can mean different things to, for different people um do you mean like the fuzzy bricks that this sort of yes. fiber you include hydrotone in there as well or how broad is rock wool for you in your in your um I'm t I'm basically talking about the rock wool cubes, like yep. the, the big bricks or the slabs that you see, like yep. a dripper stabbed into. You know, you just see like a uh, hundred foot long tables with a, with a whole bunch of cubes and drippers uh, slammed down into them. And um, so I, I don't like rock wool because uh, um, it's it's hard on the environment like the the har harvesting and manufacturing process for rock wool is just terrible on the environment and once i learned that i i realized that there's so many other alternatives um and that's kind of getting into a few of the 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 points that i wanted to make some of the stuff that i wanted to talk about in the cultivation corner episode um you know i i uh i love organic growing and so now like I mentioned, I'm growing, uh, I'm giving my, giving the first try to a, a, a no-till bed, um, just because I've seen, uh, you know, so much success. I know a lot of other people doing it. Um, just going to give it a try. Basically, I, I have been growing my own medicine in um, like large pots using, you know, just totally organic inputs, uh, you know, fishbone meal, neem seed, seabird guano rock phosphates inputs like that um but working with other growers and and um you know looking at what large-scale cultivation means uh i think that here in vermont we're, we're definitely going to see growers that are using other methods besides organic and you know it seems like there's a, a in Vermont, especially, there's there's definitely a ton of interest. I think most people that, um, I think a lot of people, probably over half the people that that uh, you and I talk to regularly uh, about growing growing cannabis are are using organic inputs. They're you know mindful of the environmental impacts that that they're growing you know has. 
Um, but we're also going to see, you know, some large scale, uh, larger scale grows where, you know, it, it may not be organic and, um, working with other growers and kind of working in environments, I've realized that just because, uh, it, you're not using 100% organic inputs to, doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you can't lessen your impact on the environment and that there aren't ways to grow, um, you know, using those same methodologies without, without, uh, without like, you know, the same damage that, you know, a few simple choices can really lower your impact on the environment. And, and, you know, you can use sustainable inputs over non-sustainable inputs at almost the same cost basically, or sometimes less. Um, so, you know, when I look at um, one one other thing that's that's kind of cool, another another style of growing that I did. Um, jumping back to that, um, you can grow with organic salts, and basically any grower that is familiar with growing in rock wool or growing in cocoa, um, you know, salts are either petroleum based. A lot of a lot of them are petroleum based or or organic based, and one really cool uh, a program that I really liked is actually organic salts, which basically means your inputs come from organically derived materials, but it's still a chelated mineral salt. So you can control your, your feed with a parts per million meter. You can, you know, uh, control nutrient availability with pH, all those same things that salt growers um used to, to grow but your inputs are like totally organic there's there's only two companies that i've used um so aurora that's like the roots organic company they have a soul synthetics line and then botanicare has a wow. yeah they have uh the pure blend pro line is uh essentially organically derived materials and you know not not everybody likes those companies and that's you know a different subject but you know when you look at what's in those when you look at what the ingredients are in those nutrients you know it's like um i have them i have them actually right here it's like composted fish meal seabird guano uh kelp rock phosphate potassium carbonate magnesium carbonate calcium carbonate all, all sourced from uh you know organic um sources so it's like that that choice over um you know a purely salt-based uh nutrient regimen like that that alone is you know in my eyes uh uh better and um so the analogy that i use when i'm talking to to growers like this is um you know when it comes to like pollution the, the being an auto mechanic so it's not about getting everybody in an electric car tomorrow um when i am looking at the overall cultivation methods um or or environment of a, a grower it's about getting the worst polluters off the road next week and that's that's like how i've approached um you know consulting uh for growers that use these styles um because you know uh getting away from something like rock wool and and going can, you know, switching over to a medium like coconut core, uh, where it can be reused like over and over and over again. It's typically sustainably sourced because it's either a waste product or um, 
uh, you know, they like, they literally harvest coconut shells off the beaches and stuff like that. So just switching from rock wool to coconut core can make a huge difference. Um, using salts that are um, sourced organically, uh, you know, to me, those things are a step in the right direction because not, not everybody is, is going to, to switch it, uh, grow hundred percent organically or cares to. And so, you know, in my work, I've been um, trying to steer people in that direction. I really um, like the perspective that you seem to have, uh, if I may, which is no matter how you grow. And I agree, you know, coming from a trade association, there are, there are many ways to skin a cat um, just because it's not no-till handmade inputs does not mean that it's not a satisfactory product um, and the process was not you know environmentally friendly so I really enjoy that perspective that you seem to have and tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong no matter how you grow there are always ways to sort of be more environmentally friendly maybe reduce your carbon footprint that sort of thing um, you can make decisions throughout the entire scheme of cultivation that that can have that impact is that what I'm hearing that, that's absolutely it. Yep. You, you summed it up better than I could have. Um, that type of stuff is important. And, it, and, you know, even beyond whether or not it's a satisfactory product, it's, it's a real, it's a reality. I mean, that's where our food comes from. You know, everybody listening has, has eaten food that's come from a, a factory farm and, you know, um, one way or another, we need to move everybody needs to be moving in the right direction. So no matter where you are now, you know, yeah, we, we need to be looking at, at where we're going, which is sustainability and eventually organic inputs. Um, so uh, let's see. Um, so, I have a question. Before we move off of that, what is that drive for you? Is that drive, you know, simply, uh, you know, um, protecting the earth for future generations, which is completely, you know, legitimate, even if it's that in and of itself, is the drive, the consumer end for this? Do they get a different product? Is the drive, you know what I mean? Like what, what is, what are some of those objectives for, you know what I mean? Uh, refining your system to be as, you know, maybe as, you know, as environmentally friendly as possible. Are you sacrificing anything? Are you improving anything? Um, I would say a little bit of all of those, you know, um, Grow it so growing in cannabis over the years. Um, when I was younger, none of those things were a factor, obviously. Um, a, a lot of us didn't necessarily think about that. Um, but the more that I've grown, the more I, you know, eventually it's you realize how much waste there can be. And um, working with some like larger scale cultivators, the, the waste is, is huge. And when you look at you know, even like nutrient runoff in your own garden, um, you know, it's maybe a few gallons a week for a small home grower, but um, for a large scale cultivator, it's, you know, hundreds of times that. And, and um, yeah, I mean, protecting the earth for future generations. I mean, any, anyone that watches like Animal Planet or uh, pays attention to like the coral reefs, you know, it, it's like, wait a minute, you know, it really comes down to everybody. Everybody is responsible here, you know, so it's, it, it's about what, what I personally can do, I guess, to, uh, to, to uh, make it better and, you know, uh, consulting and helping other growers. Uh, 
I feel like I can, I, I feel like I can have an impact. And so that's what, that's what I try to do. I think we all should be doing that really. Right. Amen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So moving away from uh, growth style. So let's wrap that up, I, I guess. So, yeah. Um, some of my favorite methods besides, uh, you know, totally organic, I have been growing, um, you know, just straight organic water feed from my own medicine for the last year, a couple years now. And it's, it's, it's probably some of the, the nicest, um, that I, that I've ever grown. Um, you can grow really nice products with, uh, with, with like those organic salts too. Uh, I, you know, not everybody's going to agree with me on that, but. I, I personally have grown some really nice flour um, from the coconut coconut combo, like cocoa and botanicare, or the uh, cocoa and the, uh, the Aurora Soul Soul stuff. I use I do use like compost teas, and um, I do use you know like uh, carbohydrate inputs and stuff like that. Um, with the with the cocoa. With the cocoa, yeah, basically. Um, so I actually did that. I actually did that pro program in flood and drain too, and it and it totally works. It's it's not uh, it's not like necessarily the most ideal program, but I did uh, organic, like pure, true hydroponics with uh, organic salts for oh, probably a year or so, and and had great results with that too. Um, but nowadays, you know, with the soil and the no-till, there's there's so many things about no-till that I that I do like with the, you know, going on everything that, I, that we've just been talking about, you know, it's like you're, you're reusing your soil, you're cutting down on even the labor your and your inputs are, are really low. There's, there's a lot to like about no-till. And so that's, that's kind of why I'm giving that a try. But um, my, my favorite methods would certainly be like an organic salt with a, a like an additive package in cocoa i think you can grow like really good flour at pretty minimal impact reusing your coconut uh, your cocoa soil you know that makes like a huge difference um and uh and then like organic soil th those are my those are basically my my two favorite methods and most most recommended now a anybody that's growing salts and and throwing away media I, i'm like listen just switch to organic salts and a reusable reusable cocoa medium and you will get the same results and and be amazed at how much money you can save and how much less impact that you have it's it's that simple so you uh, must have you must have a process for uh with cocoa specifically when you say reuse which i think is fantastic first of all two questions um I, is that, can you scale that up and still sort of be conscious in terms of creating good product and then being, you know, conscious of the environment? And then step two, what is the process for reusing the cocoa, right? Because there's a root ball in there at some point in time. Um, I assume you have, you know, some sort of SOP for that or not, but two, two questions. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, um, well, it's, it doesn't, it is laborious. I mean, there's no doubt about that. You can certainly reuse the cocoa, but you have to break it, basically break it down. And we usually separate the main taproot and the main stock out of that. And then the rest of it gets recycled. Um, I would, to scale that up to a large scale, you would most definitely need a machine that would break the root balls apart and 
like a repotting machine, you know? And so a lot of times th that may not be the, the cheapest option, but uh, it's certainly doable. Um, so when I was using my own, when I was using Hydroton, uh, I built a Hydroton washing machine essentially, which is like a plastic, wow. bar plastic barrel cement mixture, mixer with slits cut in it and a water pump that would like recirculate the water around and it would just kind of tumble it and rinse it. Um, there are machines like that, that for like root balls too, for basically separating the roots out. Um, but it's not, it's not going to be as cheap as just buying new media and throwing it away. You know, um, I think that's, that's like why, why organic, uh, you know, truly organic, uh, regenerative soil practices have, you know, caught my attention over the last few years, because that's really the, it, you know, it checks all the boxes and it's like there's less labor there's it's it's really the easiest and it's actually in the long run probably the most affordable you know and so that's that's kind of the road that that i'm going down now but um you know i i wanted to talk about some of these other other techniques because that's kind of what i've been doing for the last like 10 years um and and not just me there's a lot of other growers that have been doing the same thing um so some of the other things that I wanted to talk about quickly is um, recapturing your water. So I, I do a lot of air conditioning installs, which is either like a, a mini split heat pump or a split system for larger scale grows. And all that water from your, your dehumidifiers and your air conditioners, that is another source of waste and most people a lot of people will just like pump it down a drain um you can totally reuse your you know and should be recapturing your your water especially on a large scale grow and you know maybe it's not it's a, it's not always the, the cheapest option if you're paying for water it's it's probably going to be cheaper but um you know, simple things like UV sterilization. And if you, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's like a technique that I've, um, I've really come to love UV sterilizers because basically they're, they're chemical free. They're really low cost to operate and um, using, uh, you know, a, a UV light in a water holding tank basically will like eliminate your algae. It eliminates, uh, you know, bacterial growth in, in your tanks. Um, so if you're, if you're growing indoors and you have an air conditioner and a dehumidifier and you're, you know, you're pumping like 10, 20 gallons of water down a day or, or, or more down the drain, that's like water that you could be reusing. Um, a lot of times it needs to be cleaned with like a carbon scrub. So you, just, you basically, you're going to collect that water store it in, in, in a, a storage tank and you're going to pass it through an, a UV sterilizer and a carbon filter and it's essentially ready for to be reused. Um, and even if you're not using it uh, in your, you know, in your plants, if you're not cycling it back through the grow room, you know, using it just for other other uses in your facility or you know cleaning it's you know it's a great way to uh, really cut down on how much water you're you're using um, the the one thing to watch out for with that that I've seen is that the heavy metals um, coming from dehumidifiers and air conditioners you can definitely pick up heavy metals in that water so that you know uh, that's something to keep 
you need to you need to be testing the water occasionally or you know you can use it reverse osmosis a little more wasteful um, i was gonna say um i don't think carbon will remove heavy metals but ro would right our ro does and and that's a little more wasteful too but you know even like a a, a simple recapture system where you're capturing all of your wastewater from the room ro you know that brings you uh that brings you to a, a better percentage of recycled water um and you can, think, use, you can use it to clean and other things too. Do you think you need um, UV? I really like the idea of using that, by the way. It's, I, I've heard lots of, not just that for, but also for like the air as well. Yeah. Um, does, uh, would you need, do you think, um, UV with uh, RO? Um, I mean, I think it's just good practice. If you're storing that water in a tank and you're going to be reusing it, um, especially in an irrigation system. That's, that's the other, you know, the other side of all those things. If, if you're using irrigation with like drip emitters, um, like bacterial contamination will essentially is oftentimes like a source of clogging, uh, in those systems. So using UV basically just cuts down on, on a lot of that, um, and keeps your water clear until it makes it to the final destination. Um, So I guess one of the other topics that I that I wanted to just touch on um, too uh, is uh, CO two use. I've learned I've learned some stuff about CO two. I've been I've been growing myself uh, using CO two probably for almost fifteen years. That was a another thing that I jumped on pretty quickly just because uh, indoor growing, you know, you're really limited on. CO2 availability, even like a small grow in a closet, a small home grow in a bedroom, you know, can like pretty quickly use up uh, all the CO2 in the room. Uh, although, say, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, Nick, really fast, why would someone use CO2 before you get into it? Um, maybe break it down for those who are maybe heard of it, right, but not uh, haven't heard someone explain it. Yeah, well, I mean, CO2 is going to speed up the photosynthesis process. I mean, that, they, it basically fast tracks your plants. Um, most people, I think, that are, are growing nowadays are using some sort of CO2 uh, um, amendments, like uh, whether it's like the micro bags or, or tank CO2. Um, pretty much all large scale cultivators that I know. And, you know, some of the, even the indoor hemp growers uh, are basically, they're all using CO2 because you can, you know, you, it's about yield per square foot. And so um, another way to look at grow room efficiency, if you're growing indoors, no matter what your techniques are, you know, yield per square foot is a, a direct way of measuring your efficiency and your, and your impact basically. Um, so CO2 is, is you know, I, I, I use it because it's, uh, you know, it's going to put your numbers into, into the top tier, basically. Um, but I've also learned uh, a few different things about using CO2 indoors. Um, when I first started growing, I used to just basically turn on the CO2 as soon as I started flowering and, and just run it full tilt right to the end. And um, I don't do that anymore because I've, I've realized that you can actually control stretch, you know, growing cannabis. So, you know, you, everyone knows there's like 
certain varieties that just really will stretch like crazy. And I, I think that, uh, you know, keeping adequate CO2 during the stretch phase can really cut that back. That's been my observation. Um, and uh, so my, my current program is kind of like, uh, I keep in the, I, I like to keep CO2 in the five to 750 parts per million phase through early flower and, uh, and through stretch. And then I, I bring it up to around 1500 for mid, mid, mid and late and late flower um, to really develop the weight. Um, but another thing that I have learned working with some of the, you know, the hemp cultivators and some of the larger scale growers that I've worked with is that your source of CO2 can, can actually make quite a difference on your environmental impact. Um, burners, like propane burners, are, are, are pretty wasteful. And, um, you know, although it's like a cheaper alternative, uh, bottled gas is actually usually a byproduct of another chemical process that's, that's being done for various reasons. And so it's actually more environmentally friendly to use bottled CO2, even though it costs maybe a little bit more versus a, a propane burner. Um, so I encourage people to, to do that nowadays over the, over the burner even though it's, even though it costs less. And there's also concerns about, uh, you know, other talk to other gases. I can't name right now. I'm not, I can't remember exactly what it is, but I've, I've read some articles about CO2 burners and after comparing the environmental impacts, there's, there's definitely less using bottled gas. So if you're going to use CO2, it's and from a bottle, it's probably the best choice. If you're going to, if you're going to amend CO2, the bottle is the way to go. Um, is that something that uh, you find, um, you know, through consultation and whatnot, uh, your experience that um, people often use uh, in their sort of home grow? Uh, because in this state, right, you can grow too much of plants. It's not a lot. Um, but yeah. some, or is that mostly something you see in larger facilities or, or does it vary? Um, I mean, I see it in most, most all of the larger facilities. I mean, even the the, the few indoor hemp uh, cultivation facilities we have here in Vermont, like they're using CO2. Um, I see it in home grows too. I mean, I got lots of friends that use just the, the, the mushroom bags, you know, the micro bags in their, in their home grow. And if you have a meter, um, you know, it's pretty easy to see the benefits. Um, plants will pull like say two, two large plants. If you have one light in a, in a bedroom, that's that's maybe a uh, hundred square feet or uh, two like large plants under one light will consume all the CO two in that room in just a couple hours. Um, so you're definitely looking at you know significant increase in yield by uh, enrichment uh, CO two enrichment probably like twenty to thirty percent yield increase, which is you know if you're so if you're indoor cultivator and you're uh, you're looking at your efficiency and uh, your environmental impact. I mean, 20% more yield uh, with the same inputs across the board otherwise uh, is a, a pretty big in, improvement, you know. Especially if you have a business. Yeah, especially, you know, looking, looking towards uh, running a business. Exactly. Um, let's see. I think we're getting close on time, but um, I know 
a few people actually had asked that I talk about like terpene uh, expression in hydroponics versus organics, just because because uh, uh, I've done both. And I guess, you know, um, the one thing that I was going to mention about that, uh, you know, goes back to the uh, different types of growing. Like I, I've grown really good flour with um, with salts before. I, I don't think you can grow uh, as good flour with true organics as, as salts. Like it's, it's never going to be possible if you are comparing just a straight salt regimen to, to organics, obviously. Um, but I've I've grown pretty good flour with a lot of different programs over the years of what I would consider to be good flour. And um, I've, I find it interesting because the terpene expression is, is does vary, I guess, depending on your, your nutrient sources. I mean, even organic growers, like, you know, if you grow a clone from your friend, you may find that uh, the flour that you grow is, is slightly different, right? Um, but I think that no matter how you're growing, if, if you are feeding the plant properly, then the terpene expression will often be pretty similar. And so, you know, I, when I used to grow hydroponically, I, I, I've even grown the same strains hydroponically and, and organically. And, um, if you're getting it, if you're getting it right, it's going to be pretty similar. Um, I know some, some deep water culture cultivators that have, you know, grown the same clones that I have. And it's, it's interesting with that method. Um, you can see totally different terpene expression from strain to strain. But uh, I think that, I think that mostly lies in the fact that, uh, you know, one strain to another, they, they seem to be more prone to success in, in different systems. Like, like some systems just you know, a certain variety does not do as well. It's not able to capitalize on the, on the advantages or whatever, but, uh, you know, as what far as that? I'm not sure. I mean, that's not something that I've been able to nail down, but I've, uh, I'll give you an example. So I, I have a friend that grew for years in deep water culture and like certain strains would just do so well and, and really like produce crazy amounts of oil like just really greasy resinous buds and you know for a system where the inputs are so minimal that's you know that's impressive and like the the terpene was similar to, to what i was growing um but then there are other varieties that that you'll grow in like that in that system and there's like just real flat minimal terpenes and um I'm not sure what it is, but it seems to vary from strain to strain. Um, but as far as like the actual terpene expression, I'm not sure that that um, I'm not sure that there's a, a huge difference. Like if you're, if the plant is healthy and happy and growing well and has a majority of the inputs that it needs, it, you know, you're going to get similar terpene expression. That's that's been my. Um, I agree. My you know. I'll throw it out there. I don't know how much, um, you know, uh, you've done yourself uh, full sun, but I will say uh, th a theme that I've heard from some full sun growers in Vermont is they'll bring the same, you know, plant they're wintering, you know, all, all, all year long outside. You know, they've been doing this for decades in, inside, outside. And, yeah. the, you know, the full sun just produces something differently. Um, 
much more difficult, a lot more labor is involved. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's practical for scaling up. It has its pros yeah. and cons, but you know, environment as well, right? You know, where yep. something, you know, lots of things impact this plant and its ability to uh, express what's, what's locked inside. I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, that's like that's a, a great way to summarize that, and it and it's definitely in tune with what I've what I've observed. Um, you know. Uh, and some varieties just don't do that well outdoors in our climate, for, even from year to year, you know, and, it, and it's like, that, that's the beauty of the plant that, uh, that we all grow because, um, you know, all, all those things play a, play a role in, in what the end product is. And um, yeah, so let's see. Uh, I guess the last thing that I was going to talk about uh, quickly was I wanted to wrap up with just how I dry and cure because I think that's like a, a super important part, whether you're like growing your own medicine at home uh, or, or um, you know, if you're a large scale grower trying to, uh, you know, supply the market. Um, another thing that hasn't come up a, a whole lot uh, with some of the retailers that I've talked to is is like how to store flour too, because that's that's like a really important part of producing a high quality product. And, um, I've, I've fried lots of bud over the years, you know, like every, uh, like early grower probably has like been, been, uh, through all those different experiences, uh, trying to dry your flower and, and get the, the best tasting product, whether it's like during the grow cycle or, or during the dry cure product, but, uh, or a process rather, um, but so what I do now uh, is um, I do a, 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 an environment, a, a totally controlled environment. So if, if you're, you know, if you're growing indoors, you're probably looking at drying indoors, you know, um, and that means that you basically need a totally controlled environment that's capable of pulling the, the, that amount of water out in, in the first three days depending on how much, you know, square footage of canopy that you're harvesting. But um, so I'm able to put my harvest into the room and control that environment temperature and humidity to exactly what I want. And um, I think the general consensus nowadays is probably like 60, 60. That's a number that I hear a lot, 60 degrees, 60% humidity. Um, but I usually go a little bit lower than that. So I'll, I'll try to go to 50% humidity for the first 36 hours and uh, like a 65 or 68. And, and uh, I, uh, you kind of run like a curve. Um, so the first few, the first 36 hours, I'm, I'm able to pull a lot more water out by keeping that, that temperature up. Um, cause the warmer your air is the, the higher capacity water holding capacity is. So, um, you can kind of push the temperature up and the humidity down to pull a lot of water out of the plant in a, in a fast, you know, like a quick amount of time. And for then just, hours. just for like the first, yeah. Like the first 24 hours, I'm like 50% yep. humidity, 68 degrees. And then gotcha. the, the, the next 24 hours, I'm like 55% humidity, 65 degrees. And then, you know, like by three days, three days into the dry, I'm, I'm usually down to um, like the 60, I'm at like 58% humidity and 60 degrees kind of pull the, pull the temperature, 
pull the temperatures down to retain as as much uh, of the terpenes, you know, keep those from like boiling off um, when I'm drying. But um, that that is like the best way to to get the the flavor that you want, and and then it needs to sit at that sixty percent humidity, sixty degrees for you know at least like ten to fifteen days, and that's when I'll take it down and then start processing it. Um, but some of the other, like some of the problems that I've run into and that I've seen drying my own, especially maybe not for uh, like a home grower with a couple plants, but if you have a whole room of plants or if you're in a larger facility, um, like densely packing a room to dry it, you can, you can run into mold problems pretty easily. I'm sure most growers have, have done, uh, have had their harvest ruined by like the, the white fuzzy aspergillus or whatever that grows in there. Um, so and, even in a controlled environment, even in a, in a pristine environment that you have control over, you can still yeah. find, yep, so density, yeah. there are still other parameters you're saying. Oh, definitely. And yep. um, I mean, commercial cultivators are seeing this too. You're, you know, you're like, you can still fail. You, uh, you can fail microbial testing because of your drying process. I mean, that's what I've seen. Um, and uh, what one of the one one thing that I've been turned on to uh, in the last couple of years is actually ozone generators. And yep. that can be like that can be a game changer if you're if you're like constantly having problems in your drying room, it's probably, you know, just even if you're cleaning it like ozone will it's it's like a an airborne oxidizer. So it's just like bleaching bleaching everything that the, that the, the ozone will penetrate and it's, it's totally harmless. It's not harmless to people. So you got to be careful using, using an ozone generator, but um, yeah, even in a pristine environment and, and actually like the cooler temperatures are more favorable to mold growth. So you're kind of fighting a battle between being able to remove the ideal amount of water in the first three days of drying. You know, that's like the, the crucial period. Um, it also really helps to cut back your water and, you know, if you're, if you're growing, if you can control the amount of water that's going into your plant, then cut the water back before harvest, because that will save your dehumidifiers and, and, uh, you know, it'll also like reduce the amount of water that you're trying to get out of that plant in the first couple days. Um, you know, obviously if you're outdoor, you can't control that, that type of thing, but being in, a, in an indoor environment, you, you know, you can take advantage of that. Um, I was going to say that, you know, that old school technique that varies per medium as well, right? Like for instance, oh, yeah. living soil, you, you know, that, right. Uh, mm -hmm. needs to always have a certain amount of moisture level, right? Yeah. So, whereas, you know, cocoa, come on, or even certain bags, you could dry that out. You can dry them back right? if you wanted exactly. to, right? If you, you wanted know, to, yeah. Actually stress yeah. it out and, you know, yeah. but absolutely, I think it's a, that's a great point. Um, I just want to pause for a moment and say we are a little past uh, eight, so uh, we are, we're, we'll continue talking, but uh, anyone who has attended, um, guys, feel free to raise your hand. Uh, Zoom's got the little hand feature. We will toss you the mic and we'll uh, we'll bring you into the conversation if you've got a question or a thought uh, for Nick uh, or just in general uh, on growing. Um, and again, we'll let you speak. Uh, and if not, we'll uh, you know toss something in the chat and we'll we'll get them into the conversation as well. So um, please go ahead and uh, if you guys want, um, share your thoughts and we'll bring you into the conversation. Um, cool. Um, 
So listen, uh, I just want to say, um, I really appreciate uh, you bringing up these sort of, um, you know, uh, items that someone would want to think about who has maybe been growing in their house or, you know, uh, in a, you know, a questionable space and, and is thinking about scaling up and entering this adult use space. You're mentioning yeah. a lot of items in an SOP, a st you know, standard operating procedure that a regulator would want so you're sort of yeah. you know approaching what you would almost consider red tape you hear this term you know tossed yeah. around and so i really appreciate you thinking about that because i think or mentioning it because i think a lot of people are thinking about that now um that's important right is scaling up easy uh in general like what are your thoughts on that going from a tent to a warehouse you know what i mean um a lot of people are yeah i i think you're right uh, a lot of people are considering that and um I mean, it's not easy. Uh, you know, even if you've gone, if you've ever gone from a, a tent to like an outdoor plot, or, or a, you know, it, it's not easy, but, um, you know, I think, uh, a lot of the people that I know, uh, a lot of my good friends that are interested in joining the rec market are essentially small cultivators, whether they've been growing the whole, the home grow or, you know, even the, the legacy market growers. Um, I love that I've been following legalization and like various states around us. And I just got to say and recognize that I have never heard the word legacy cultivator brought up so many times, you know, except here in Vermont. And that that's really uh, that's really cool, because, I mean, let's face it, we're all growers. There's a there's a lot of legacy growers in the state that have been growing, you know, for their friends uh, for a long time, and you know, it, I I definitely recognize the work that VGA has done, and and you know that many folks have done to bring the market basically to us to cultivators, you know, um, and so that <clears throat> that's definitely something worth uh, recognizing. Um, but as far as scaling up, you know. Uh, I guess it depends on where you're at, you know, but, uh, it is, uh, it's, it's going to be an interesting road for all of us. And, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for it. Well, it looks like we've got someone with their hand up, uh, Ben, uh, we're going to toss you the mic here. Um, all right, let's see here. Thanks for joining us, dude. Can you hear us? Ben, you are muted. Uh, you should be able to speak. If you unmute. All right, you there? Can you hear me now? Hey, thank you. Yeah. Hey, Ben. Cool. Um, sorry, it's my first time using the Zoom, actually. Um, no problem. I was just curious, a uh, question for Nick. Uh, you could recommend some good um, energy efficient lighting for maintaining plants just in the vegetative stage, so not necessarily for flowering, but um, a lot of LED technology coming out in the last few years, and I was curious if you could uh, your insight on the most energy efficient light use the least amount of power. Yeah, man, um, that was actually something uh, that I wanted to touch on too, but <clears throat> got carried away on some other topics, and uh, there's a whole bunch of different things that I was considering talking about. But uh, LED lighting is definitely the most uh efficient i mean we all know that and uh um as far as recommending something um I, I, so right now i'm actually using mammoth 
LEDs. They're um, a company out of New York. And I really like their stuff. Um, I have also seen the Growers Choice. Um, they're available, I think, through Hydro Builder, maybe a few different places. They, um, I've, I've seen those lights in action. Those are like really great lights. Um, I, but I think ultimately, um, I mean, there is a plethora of LED lighting out there. Um, and no matter what you're, no matter what you choose that I don't think you're going to be unhappy. Um, I, I switched to LED probably, uh, I went full LED a little over a year ago <clears throat> and I played around with some smaller, uh, units, but it wasn't really until I saw the full spectrum with, um, UV and far red that I was, I was really impressed, but, um, you know, that's, that's definitely one of the biggest uh, impacts that cannabis growing has on on uh, the environment is the amount of electricity that's used. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely go LED. Uh, if I think of some other um, recommendations, I'll let you know. But uh, either either of those companies I mentioned are are awesome. We've got someone, I uh, just want to jump in, Ben and Nick, uh, joining, uh, adding to the LED conversation, Bushy Beard in chat says HLG. Uh, oh, yes, totally. Yeah, they're, they're, they're great, too. The first LED that I used was uh, uh, HLG, the 320, like triple bar, uh, or tri triple panel on, on one heat sink, so... I don't, I don't have like a lot of uh, uh, recommendations really right in front of me, but um, I guess to answer Ben's question, like if I was thinking about vegetative only, I would be probably low cost and a really good bang for your buck. Um, look at the grower's choice. Uh, can't remember the exact model. Awesome. And does switching lights uh, change up uh, any other sort of um, procedures in cultivation, would you say? whether it's atmospheric, you know, temperature, yeah. humidity, uh, water intake, does a plant respond? You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Oh, dude. Okay. So that's like, that's a, absolutely. That's like a whole nother, uh, that's something we could have like a whole topic on that. But basically when you are looking at like a, a if you're looking at a flowering environment, indoor, like medium or large scale, if you're using like double-ended HPS or even like the traditional single-ended HPS or even like the ceramic metal halides, those things kick ass too. Uh, you can grow some really cool, really great flower with those. Um, but the amount of heat that they put out is is like tremendously more, like 2000 BTUs a fixture more, um, you know, like a, a seven or 800 watt uh, LED fixture, you're looking at like 2,500 BTUs, whereas uh, a double-ended uh, thousand-watt fixture is like uh, five thousand BTUs per fixture. So it's just like massive. Um, and you know, setting setting up your room for uh, for growing, like uh, you know, if you were set up for double-ended, the obviously the amount of cooling that you're going to have is is like a lot more. Um, but one of the other bigger big differences is that the ambient because the ambient temperature is higher and just the air volume in the room is higher you tend to take a lot more water out of the air with your cooling than with like a dedicated dehumidifier so when you switch to leds you will find that your humidity spikes like crazy and um 
you know, you may not be able to control it. And you'll also find that your room's a lot cooler. And for flowering rooms, that's that can be less than ideal. Um, so why is that? Uh, well, the growth slows. I mean, the lower the temps, the, the growth slows. Um, you need to hit your optimum VPD to really be in the sweet spot for, for growing. So um, if you're not familiar with the VPD chart, you should definitely be paying attention to that, like as an indoor grower. Um, so when you switch to LEDs, you know, the lights need to be a lot closer because the, the light dissipates further from the plants. Um, you know, you really need to uh, be using a light meter. If you're going to be like efficiently using LEDs, you need a light meter so that you can place the light above the canopy at the right height and and you know exactly how much light you're getting because um with with hid lighting you know you can like kind of guesstimate you can look and be like that's a lot of light you put your hand underneath like that's too hot um the leds are like really hard to to estimate you know it'll, it'll look like not a lot of light and like you're far enough away but you will you you can burn them with with that sure. cool cool intense light um and you know the humidity thing um because because there's less heat load you kind of either need to uh upsize your your pints per hour on on your dehumidification or um you know uh if you're if you're like a larger scale grower pretty much nowadays most people are looking at like reheat techniques so um instead of instead of having dedicated dehumidifiers in your flowering room and a dedicated air conditioner, you know, you are, you have a, some sort of a more efficient heat source. And so when you build your room, kind of oversize your cooling, you, you put in additional BTUs of cooling. And then when you need to move water out of the air, um, you just add heat to the room. So, you know, uh, instead of like an, an electric dehumidifier is going to, cost you a lot and it adds a lot of heat to your room which means your air conditioner runs more you can find like a, a more efficient heat source whether whatever that is anything besides electric basically um even radiant like the you, you know an efficient radiant system uh any way to add heat to the room which will in turn cause your cooling to run harder which i mean that's that's how dehumidification and cooling is basically the same process when you cool right. the air the water falls out of the air and it is taken away. So that's that's like what larger scale growers are are doing nowadays, especially with LED rooms, because uh, you can cut your power consumption considerably too, just by uh, you know adding adding the heat efficiently and then letting the cooling uh, cool the room and take the water at the same time. So those are probably the biggest differences that I've that I've experienced going from uh, high intensity discharge to, to led, but awesome. Um, well, listen, uh, we are, let's see here there, we've got some time left. So anybody, uh, you know, feel free to raise your hand, uh, and join the conversation. I did want to give you the opportunity, Nick, to complete the sort of, um, packaging and storing kind of thing. So you touched upon drying and curing, yep. um, Packaging and storing, you know, uh, spend like maybe a minute on that. You know, um, what do you recommend? How long can you hold something? What's considered fresh for when? Not just for yeah. producers, but for retailers. It seems like you're you're you know you're being asked those questions, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I've I've talked to some folks that are hoping to open retail stores, and uh, 
you know, as a cultivator, it's important to me that if somebody is buying, if somebody's going to be buying my product, I want to make sure that they're able to get the exact same product that I'm able to enjoy. And so uh, storing it, you know, I'm kind of in favor of the, the, the light proof containers um, for that reason, because basically everyone knows THC degrades, the terpenes degrade, uh, the, you know, the, the product degrades in heat and light. And so uh, keeping it in the dark is probably the, one of the most important uh, items, but then also storing it in the, in the same environment that it's dried in. Like, you know, I was talking about drying, pulling down to those, uh, those low temperatures. Once it's been, you know, once you've been, once it's been clipped off the stems and kind of packaged up, you need to store it in the same environment. It needs to be a, a cool and dark environment. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of like the dispensaries in some other states where they have like the jar that everyone can kind of like check out and, and smell. That's great if, if you want to like look and sample the product, but I, I don't know like necessarily the idea of I was going to say, let, let me jump in. So, you know, yeah. this is not a policy conversation at all, but let me ask you. Uh, and for those yeah. who are attending who aren't familiar, so that's called, there's, so there's uh, in cannabis law, there's typically uh, packaged states or deli packaged states. And they're actually talking about us implementing deli packaging, which is the option, not a requirement, the option to basically do on site uh, packaging and distribution, right? Uh, that's what it allows. Yeah. So in other words, right, you can you can smell it, you can have that sample jar that you can even pull from. So how would that change up for either a producer or a retailer if that was a reality? Very briefly for something for you to respond to, knowing we didn't sort of plan this. Yeah. yeah. Deli style, you know, never mind your thoughts. Is that something, you know what I mean? Like, how do you navigate that? That's yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I'm interested. To, I would be interested to see what other folks, uh, growers, um, have have to say about that too. But my uh, my opinion is that uh, I think you're going to get the most stable product if you're doing the packaging yourself. And so for me, I know we're, we're gonna we're gonna aim to be packaging all, all of our stuff in recyclable, renewable packaging and uh, storing it on site until it goes to to the retailers that will hopefully be storing it in like a, a climate controlled uh, cooled environment because um i i just i don't like the idea of that I, I mean i love the idea of like a sample jar but just like pulling out of the of the jar and just just dispensing like that to me seems like um I mean, the constant introduction of oxygen into that container, like it's it's going to degrade, you know, and yeah. and so if it's flying off the shelves and it sits there like a, a week or something, like that's not a big deal. But you know, nobody wants to be judged by their product that's been sitting on like a, a, a warm shelf in the sun for over a month or more, and then it's like, oh well, that was that wasn't that great, and and it's not a, an actual representation of of what it was you know you see that in the hemp industry even here in vermont you know it's like the hemp by by spring is not it's not the same flower all the time that that you were buying like in the fall you know because i buy cbd flour sometimes and, and it's you know it, it totally changes and uh so i was gonna say i'll, I'll never forget that one of the first times i sort of met um former lieutenant governor david zuckerman good guy yeah. um he was at it was at a farmer's market many years ago and he had his 
hemp product and it was like a one pound satchel and it was like yep. you know, grab what you want basically <laughs> you know? yeah like, totally wow. <laughs> yep. pretty open pretty open but totally. yeah, or oregon is a state where they're uh you know a deli package state and where they have that option um and sometimes on yeah. a sample jar or or you know they'll sample they'll package on site but that's really interesting I, I i appreciate the perspective you know uh yeah 100 so but anyway yeah. uh oh looks like we got chat um all right bushy beard i agree with nick at least the amount of handling the less degradation will occur it's all about maintaining quality absolutely absolutely yeah absolutely definitely. Yep. thank you bushy beard um excellent awesome yeah man time time flew i feel like we could have um gone for another hour yeah oh totally yeah i had a great time i'm not not the best uh speaker so you know i'm glad you glad you were able to uh i hope you were able to to you know, grasp some of the concepts that I was, that I was putting out there, but, uh, yeah, For sure. it, was, it was really fun. So, yeah, I mean, dude, would you do this again? I mean, I oh, definitely. Yeah. Know, I like, yeah. 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 Totally. I mean, we could go into, a, you know, genetics. I feel like I could ask you, uh, you know, we could go into a whole show about, you know, just genetic expression and all these. Exactly. Different mediums, so, but anyway. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, I had a great time. I definitely appreciate all the uh, all the folks that tuned in and uh, and the comments and all that too. So, thanks, Nick. Uh, look forward to continuing the conversation with everybody out there. And uh, stay yeah. safe. Stay safe, guys. Keep growing. Awesome. Cool. Have a good yeah. night. Thanks. Yeah.